This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. It's time to get back into the story of Jesus' public ministry. Enough with this Sermon on the Mount. Well, okay, we're going to finish up the Sermon on the Mount today. But it, it is important to realize that the Sermon on the Mount is not a distraction from the main story. It's kind of an important moment in the main story. You know, in a movie where you'll see those scenes early on where whatever Indiana Jones interacts with his students or with his guide, the people he's with, and you get a sense of his character or Elizabeth Bennett. If you watch Pride and Prejudice, you see how she interacts with her family, with her mother, and you get to learn how these people are and what their personality is all about. Well, this is the moment where we meet Jesus Christ and see what kind of person he is by seeing how he interacts. So I want to start the podcast by reading some of the gospel passages from the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, then we'll discuss it, put it in context, and then we will be on and upward into the story of the life of Jesus Christ. This is from the 6th and 7th chapter of Matthew. And what I'll do is I'll just take excerpts that we can talk about. And uh, there's lots in the Sermon on the Mount, lots of it that comes up later in the story. So we'll be revisiting some of these things and we'll visit new ones that we're not hearing. He says, Beware of practicing your piety before men in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. When you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is sound, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is not sound, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, The crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Let's reset the scene. Jesus has brought his disciples up on a mountaintop or a hilltop. He lifts his eyes up to them and he teaches. 
These people who he's brought there are both his apostles, those who he's going to be a mentor to, who are going to travel with him. They need to see how he interacts with people, what he does, what he says. And then there are his disciples, those who are not going to necessarily be following him all around, but are going to learn from him. And he's kind of a coach. They want to know how to interact with the world, what his new teaching is all about. And then there's us. We're there too because of technology, uh, the technology of writing for starters and books and then the printing press and the Bible through the podcast now. But we're meant to be there. We're meant to hear these words as being spoken to us, not just to the people there. We've briefly saw before the Sermon on the Mount began, Jesus forgiving and healing and starting to earn the ire of his opponents. Uh, so now he's laying out his program He's going to jump back into that active public ministry. But now we get this moment where we see what he's like, this high octane vision of who Jesus is. He's direct. He's honest. He's authoritative. He's kind of punchy is an old word about somebody who speaks with a kind of panache. He's understanding also. He's all of these things all at once. He's this incredible figure who has now fascinated mankind and not just Christians and followers, but scholars and poets and people who are just interested for millennia. And he tells them that he is a continuation, in fact, a fulfillment of the Jewish law and prophets. And he's training his Christians to be like him, to be his shock troops in the world. So Jesus is telling us a way of seeing the world and living in it that's truer than the truth of how we think things are. So let's talk about how we think things are first. When book seven of Plato's Republic, Socrates tells this famous analogy of the cave where prisoners are locked to a wall in such a way that they can't turn their heads and they must stare straight ahead. He says, here they have been from their childhood and their legs and necks chained so that they cannot move and can only see in front of them because they are prevented by the chains from turning their heads. Then he describes that there's something behind them, kind of like a movie projector with kids making hand puppets, only for them it's a fire, and uh, there are people with actual puppets who are casting shadows on the wall, and then all the prisoners can see are these shadows on the wall. So Socrates' thought experiment in the analogy is to imagine what would perception be like for a prisoner in this circumstance? If you're locked into this world, and this is all you know, if you were suddenly dragged from your spot, what would you think of the fire, the puppets? Uh, you would actually, he claims, think that what you saw on the wall was reality and these other things are something else. That alone would be really hard, but if with difficulty you were climbed out of the cave, the sun would burn his eyes and at first he'd have to look at the shadows of things. He couldn't look at the things that were reflecting the light or at the sun itself, certainly. He would have this vision of reality, this blessed vision, or as he calls it, a beatific vision, which we use in the faith to, de to describe the vision of heaven. Because he'd see things with more color than he'd ever seen before, more form, more depth, more truth, more beauty, more goodness. And he'd be entranced by them, and he'd love them. And he'd probably want to go down and tell the other prisoners about them. But if he did, the people would think he was crazy. 
And if he insisted on this vision he had had, they would eventually, in the analogy anyway that Socrates gives, they would put him to death. So versions of this cave story have proliferated throughout Western literature. One that I recently came across is in the book White Fang by Jack London, where this half-wolf, half-puppy is in a cave with his mother, and he considers the light in the mouth of the cave kind of a wall, and he's astonished that his father can walk through the wall, but he figures nobody else can. And as he matures, he discovers the world outside of his cave, but he always longs to go back to that cave where he was safe in the warmth and love of his mother and protected, and he, of course he never can. This is what happens to us when we discover reality. We long for that state of ignorant bliss, and we have trouble grappling with the real world. Another example, of course, is the movie The Matrix, where Neo takes the red pill and sees reality for the first time. In the first movie, which is really great, and which is the only one I've ever seen, um, there's another character who desperately wants to get back into the safe world where he was comfortable and understood everything, even though it's deceptive and fake. He prefers what's safe over what's difficult, even though it's deceptive and fake. These stories have all kinds of applications. For Socrates, he wanted to say that there was a real reality out there that we didn't have access to yet, like literally a world of forms. And there's something to that, 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 uh, that there's some ideal state of things that they're moving toward, but we're not going to go there. Instead, we're going to talk about the other ways this story makes itself manifest in our life. One is the lives we show people versus our real lives. You know, when somebody comes to your house and they say, oh my gosh, I can't believe your house is so clean. My house is so messy. And you say, well, we knew you were coming, so we cleaned up, right? It doesn't always look like this. And your manners are very kind and, and somebody looking at you interacting with your family in the car ride home will say, they're so much nicer to each other than we are. And you've got to remind yourself, well, we saw them with company over. <laughs> We're nice when company's over also. Anyway, so you have this two versions of yourself. One is the one that's performative that you present to the world, and one is the real you. In the lives we show each other, our homes are ordered and our manners are perfect. But when they aren't around, our houses and our lives are much more messy. But another version of this is told in the theories of Michel Foucault this uh, French thinker at the end of the 20th century who actually started out studying prisons and then he started studying the history of morality and he was actually in his private life a very creepy individual. But he believed that language was a trap that was built by those in power to kind of keep you in line. In prisons, it's not just the bars and the locks that keep you in line, but also the routines and the way of talking to you and the way of framing your reality. So he thought that is exactly what was happening in the rest of the world. And a lot of people believed that that was the case. And a lot of this, I think, is in kind of an objection to Christianity or to the old way of thinking or to the church sort of implicitly, which had set up all these categories for people to think in. And now people felt trapped by the old language of the church and the old categories, and they wanted to break free of them. Of course, we see the very opposite right now. Our schools and our media and our authority figures use words that make us think the world is a certain way. And you can see clear examples of this all around. Like they don't want to call an unborn child an unborn child. They want to say fetus, even though you know somebody should tell them that fetus literally means unborn child. 
But they also want to dehumanize unborn children in other ways. I guess they're now calling fetal heartbeats cardiac activity because they don't want to say heartbeat with regard to an unborn child. The idea is that these social constructs that they put around us keep us in the cave staring at whatever the puppet master wants us to stare at. The way the Sermon on the Mount avoids this problem and breaks free from this problem is by putting you in touch with God himself. God isn't a bureaucracy. He's not a benign cause he, that may or may not give you what you want eventually in some indirect way that's impersonal and not very transparent. He's a person, a father, who wants to be in a relationship with you. And interpersonal relationships require honesty and they require you understanding the world from the other person's perspective. So Jesus has to take his word for it. His father is a true father. He will give us what we ask for. He realizes that he might sound a little unrealistic. There are plenty of times we seem to knock and at the door and it's not opened. We seem to ask and not receive. We seem to seek and not find. But Jesus explains here and in Luke uh, also, what father among you would hand his son a snake when he asks for a fish or hand him a scorpion when he asks for an egg? If you then who are wicked know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? When we pray, For instance, Lord, give me this job, give my children this opportunity, give my brother this spiritual gift. The Lord knows what we're really asking. We're saying, give me the career that I need, give my children the lesson that will make them stronger, lead my brother to you. God's not a literalist who will give you the job you wanted, whether it's going to derail you or not. He's not going to give the opportunity to your kids that he knows is going to be a disaster for your kids. He's not going to short circuit the freedom of love, which alone can save your brother. He's like a good father going to give you what you ask for, even if you've mistaken a scorpion for bread. But it's our perception of things that makes it seem like we're being shortchanged by the father. So God wants us to trust him in order to see the world the way it really is. And if the cave analogy doesn't work for you to describe how we don't see the world the way it really is, you don't even need an analogy of a cave to understand that we don't see the world the way it really is. There are biological ways that we are every moment creating our own reality. You can demonstrate this for yourself by closing your left eye and noticing what's straight ahead. And you'll start to notice that your nose is there Now close your other eye and look straight ahead and you'll notice that your nose is there but on the opposite side of your face. Now when you open your eyes, you never see your nose, but your nose is always there. So if you actually try to picture, try to notice the fact that your nose is there, even while you stare straight ahead, suddenly your brain has moved those two images from opposite sides of your face to the middle of your face. So this is your brain constructing reality around you, giving kind of its guess to what reality is and applying it to what's coming in through your eyes. This happens in ways that your brain gets it wrong, as we've seen in all sorts of optical illusions. There was even that dress, that blue and yellow dress online. Some people saw a blue dress, some people saw a yellow dress. 
But brain science has taught us all sorts of ways that we construct our own reality and sometimes get it wrong and sometimes deliberately get it wrong and sometimes it's best to get it wrong. And psychology tells us even more how we construct our own realities. Everyone is on a different point in the spectrum of autism, for instance. Uh, you know, people, you say certain people are on the spectrum, but we're all really on the spectrum if you think about it to one degree or another. Everybody has a different set of things that they notice about the world. We're all like that blind, the three blind men who felt the elephant and described it. One described, said the elephant was long and snaky because all he felt was the trunk. One thought the elephant was loose and floppy because all he felt was the elephant's ear, right? We're all like that. We're all right about what we see in the world and we're all wrong about what we see in the world. God's revelation has understood this from the beginning. God has known that our perception changes our allegiance, so he instituted the no golden calf rule in the Ten Commandments, because he knows that as soon as you build a golden calf, you're going to worship the golden calf. It's just so awe-inspiring, you can't help it. Uh, we do the same thing with movie technology and with celebrities. Then he instituted the rule for the Jewish nation to not take foreign wives. He did this not to be mean, but because he knew that as soon as his people took foreign wives, they would start to take on the practices and beliefs of their new wives, and they would abandon him. Uh, this all goes back to that first encounter of Adam and Eve with the snake. Lucifer had started to see God as a tyrant, and he rebelled and took all those angels with him, if you will recall. And then in the misty depths of time, mankind had a choice to make, and Lucifer was right there coaching us to see God the way he sees God. The way the Bible illustrates the choice for Adam and Eve is the tree of knowledge of good and evil and a tree of life. Okay, these are highly symbolic, uh, but they are highly suggestive and, and tell a lot of truth. If you look at the story, Satan actually conflates the two trees. He makes it seem like God is holding back life from them in holding back the way, the, the knowledge of good and evil. He paints God as a slave master who wants people to do things his way. And if they could only make their own morality up, then things would go great for them. But God is the creator of everything. He's the source of all goodness, beauty, and truth. And to decide to pull away from his vision of good and evil and make our own means not that we get more truth, it means we get less. It means like a prisoner in Plato's cave, we begin to choose a false image over God's. The way the Bible illustrates this in the story of Adam and Eve is by saying that the forbidden fruit looked good for food, a delight to the eyes, and to be desired to make one wise. So they were already relativizing the truth as something that was for them. The truth of good and evil was something that for them, serving them, a delight to them, a way to find their own self-actuation through this sin. For us, it's the life of self-centered pleasure-seeking, escapist distractions, and asserting our will over God's. So in baptism, you reject this way of looking at the world. You reject this cave way of looking at the world. You say we re reject Satan and all his empty promises, and you reject the glamour of evil and refuse to be mastered by sin. Satan's always enticing us with these empty promises and superficial beauty. So Jesus gets at this in the Sermon on the Mount by saying, the eye is the lamp of the body. 
So if your eye is sound, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is not sound, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? In Luke, he reports a similar idea when he says, Can a blind person guide a blind person? Will not both fall into the pit? But Jesus is addressing this to each of us. He sees a real problem he wants to warn us about. The problem is our blindness, a darkness in our eye that distorts what we look at. We are blind to our own faults. We've so often indulged and excused the small luxuries and indiscretions. We allow ourselves that we hardly notice the extent to which we've embraced, for instance, a consumerist lifestyle that's morally lax. We're blind to the worth of others. We've enjoyed so much blindness, sexuality, and ridicule of others in our entertainment and online that we hardly notice that it has changed the way we think about the people that we meet. We're blind to the needs around us. We've so often rehearsed our excuses for not serving the material and spiritual needs of others that we often don't even bother to rationalize it anymore. Why do you notice the splinter in your brother's eye but do not perceive the wooden beam in your own, asks Jesus. It's because we've deadened and darkened our consciences, the light of God in our hearts, but it refuses to go entirely dark. Our conscience's alarm still goes off, but often we only hear it when it registers others' faults and not our own. What we've done and what Jesus is describing here with the darkness in your eye is that we've created our own cave, our own Plato's cave, our own place where we are seeing only what we want to see and only, in some cases, what the devil wants us to see. So think of the Sermon on the Mount as a description of our job as Christians. We're supposed to be the ones who turn on the switch in our consciences and counter the lies of the Prince of Darkness with the truths of the light of the world. We're emissaries from the world of light, meant to come down into the cave and show everybody else the way out. So Jesus came from outside our cave, outside the maze that we're in, and People thought he was crazy and they killed him, just like in Socrates' analogy. So what he's kind of telling us to do here, and this comes at the beginning of his public ministry before he's quite ready to be killed yet. Uh, what he's telling us to do here is to be secret Christians, if you will, witnesses before we're preachers, people who show the world before we tell them the way. Obviously, he wants us to tell them also, but he wants us to lead by first showing them in our lives the way the Christian life looks. Look at all the ways you're supposed to be a secret Christian in what I read. When you fast, you aren't supposed to disfigure your face so that people can tell you're fasting. When you pray, you go inside your room and close your door. Okay, a couple of things here. First of all, I've got to say, I find it ironic that on Ash Wednesday, we read this reading about not disfiguring your face to show that you're fasting. And then the priest says, okay, everybody line up and we're gonna disfigure your face to show that you're fasting. I have always found that kind of odd uh, to directly contradict the gospel like in the same service that we read that gospel. Um, I think this is only, I, I was actually during COVID, we discovered that in the rest of the world, people are sprinkling ashes on tops of people's heads on Ash Wednesday. They're not making the big cross on their forehead. So I think this may be a United States thing. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's probably in other places as well, but it's certainly not in a lot of places. 
And I think it kind of goes with the showiness of American style and American faith and the fact that we were, uh, we do a lot of more showy things in our masses than they do elsewhere. We kneel more, we kneel at more times. I love going to pray in front of the Blessed Sacrament. And whenever I can, I do. I make a holy hour at least once a week when I'm signed up for it. I try to do it more than that. Nothing against the Blessed Sacrament. It's huge. It's great. It's wonderful. It's the place to be. It should be your special resting place. But literally in this gospel, we have Jesus saying that you should go into your room and pray with the door closed. So I guess the lesson for me is don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Great if you can get to the Blessed Sacrament. If you can't, you know what? Jesus himself, the man at the top, said, just go in your room and pray. Okay, I'm going to get off my soapbox now and go on with the podcast. So we want to be secret Christians. The problem is that our sight has been hijacked. We see the world like Eve saw the apple, something that will serve us, something that will serve our ends, something that will serve our desires. So God says to practice your piety with no hope of reward from anyone but God. Instead, you are living now by the laws of the kingdom so that when God puts the kingdom in place, you will already be acting as you should. To do this, you have to be in touch with Jesus Christ and then be in touch with the world. You need both of those things, right? So look at the Sermon on the Mount this way. You can't fool God. There's no substitute for actually becoming holy, actually talking to him. And there's sort of three steps that he's giving us here. First is to pray in private to God the Father so that you will see your life from his point of view and giving you an objective view of your own life and other people's worth. Second, fast from those things you normally indulge in. He talks a lot here about fasting so that you can see where the excesses are in your life and not be so attracted and so attached to the forbidden fruits of the world that you can't break away from the bonds of slavery. And then give alms. That's the ultimate way to do both those things at once. You give alms by being generous to others. You're putting others before yourself. You're seeing others from God's perspective, and you're taking the stuff that you want, and you're giving it to them instead. It's a way to definitively break the bonds of the prison that are holding you in the cave and to get away from your slave master, Satan. The Sermon on the Mount is instruction on becoming who you are. Jesus says the evidence of our life should show who we are. A good person out of the store of goodness in his heart produces good, but an evil person out of the store of evil produces evil. A tree is known by its fruits. And this is the way I like to think about it. Okay, so we are Robin Hood. I loved Robin Hood when I was a kid. And I had a picture book with Robin Hood kneeling in Sherwood Forest, looking up at a cross. Um, and it wasn't some kind of Christian book. It was just a random book that had Robin Hood in it. And this was their depiction of him. So I kind of always thought of him as a Christian, which, a, which indeed he is in the older versions of the story. So we're like Robin Hood, living according to the ways of the true king and not to the lies of the false king. In the story... 
King Richard the Lionheart was away at the Holy Land fighting a crusade, which could take years. And in his absence, his evil brother John, aided by the evil sheriff of Nottingham, was ruling in this corrupt and oppressive way. So when the king's away, the true followers of the king become outlaws. That's where we are today. We're followers of the true king, Jesus Christ, which means we look like outlaws in our day. And if you're an outlaw, you have to be careful because just like the prisoners in the cave, people will try to lock you up if you tell them the truth. That's our job in this world today, to be emissaries of the light, to understand the Sermon on the Mount, be in our knees because we can't live it and do our best to live it anyway and stay true to the absent king, the king of the universe, Jesus Christ himself, who is not absent at all. He's there in his real presence in the tabernacle, but he is absent from the world unless we put him there because that's what he asked us to do, to tell with our stories, his extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Our mission is to produce media that will transform culture in America through Benedictine's mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Leave a review and share with a friend. Help us tell others about The Extraordinary Story. Visit us at excorde.org.